Hello and welcome to the Medico Lifestyle Podcast. My name is Dr Jonas Hayes, I'm a foundation doctor. And my name is Emily Kelly and I'm a graduate entry medical student. Our podcast tackles tough medical topics and we welcome guests to talk about their work in the world of healthcare and beyond. Today we're going to be covering the topic of COPD. Don't forget, you can head to our website, www.medicolifestyle.com, where we've put together some lovely notes that cover everything that we're going to talk about today that you can download for free. Today, our case presentation is that of a 65-year-old gentleman who presents to A&E with a one-week history of increasing breathlessness and increasing volumes of thick green sputum. He's got a past medical history of hypertension, and he's a chronic smoker with a 40-pack year history. Mm. So quite clearly here, we have got a classic case presentation of someone who has an exacerbation of their COPD. So chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, as it says in the name, is a chronic disease Mm -hmm. of the airways that also has these periods of exacerbations. Like this guy. Like this guy's presenting to us now. So what is COPD? Um, So I would like to throw the words emphysema mm-hmm. and chronic bronchitis around into my definition. So how do you define chronic bronchitis? Um, a cough that goes on for a while. Yeah, so clinically defined as a cough um, which is productive of sputum mm-hmm. for at least three months of the year for at least two years in a row. So that's chronic that's bronchitis. a lot of coughing, actually. It's a lot of coughing. It's mm. a lot of sputum as well. And then emphysema is damage to the alveoli, isn't it? Yeah. So it's damage to the to the lung parenchyma, which is a great name for, like, tissue. Uh, or alveoli. Yeah. Um, which alveoli. Means... I always say alveoli. Is that one? I think you're right. I think it's alveoli for more than one. You know, I, d- I don't... Yeah, and I think so. Alveoli. I... Alveoli. Maybe someone will tell us. <laughs> but that's fine. So emphysema... The alveoli are damaged, see I can say either now, or the alveoli are damaged (laughs) and enlarged and that causes a reduction in the amount of space you've got for gas exchange and that leads to breathlessness. And don't people with COPD also have like remodelling of their airways, so like the the chronic inflammation in the bronchitis part Mm -hmm. like actually leads to like physical changes in the way that their airways are made up, so they have like more mucus producing cells Mm -hmm. so those are the goblet cells that produce mucus Mm -hmm. so you get more of them and they grow in size produce more mucus and you've got another thing uh as well so you've got cilia that line the airway oh they're like little hairs that yeah i'm wafting my hands here. yeah so they're like those little little hairs that waft mucus up from the lower airways up so they can be swallowed basically Mm -hmm. And um, with COPD, you get dysfunction of those. So you yeah. get less wafting, less yeah. movement of that mucus. So you're going to have to cough a lot to get it up. So when you're considering a diagnosis of COPD in mm-hmm. someone, what would be the key features? So to diagnose someone with COPD, mm-hmm. they have to be over 35. Yeah. Um, with like a risk factor. Mm-hmm. So a smoker or an exposure risk and they also have to have one of the either like one of the symptoms of COPD mm-hmm. so either a cough or you can get like recurrent bronchitis mm-hmm. or like breathlessness mhm good and do you know how much smoking exposure they have to have had no so it's about 20 pack year history of smoking 
can you describe what a pack year is? A uh, pack year is 20 cigarettes a day for a year. So 20 pack years is? 20 years of smoking 20 cigarettes a day. Absolutely. So but if any... they smoke 40 cigarettes a day, then that's... You get 20 pack years in 10 natural years, Yeah. right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So it could be that they're quite a young patient that's managed to smoke you know, two packs a day. They've tried really hard. They've tried really hard and have managed to, to get themselves a diagnosis of COPD on that basis. Mm. Okay, and then when we are trying to investigate people for COPD, yep. what are the kind of key investigations that we do? Spirometry. So spirometry yeah, is a really important way to investigate COPD. Mm-hmm. And what are the key measurements that we measure when we're doing, when we're doing spirometry? So you want to measure that... FEV1 mm-hmm. and their FVC. Their FEV1 is their forced expiratory volume mm-hmm. in one second, hence the one. And their FVC is their forced vital capacity. And what's FVC made out of? Which other elements of the spirometry? So if you think about that, like, uh, I don't know, waveform for breathing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they call that. Um but that graph that they show you for how you breathe. Mm-hmm. So you've got your tidal volume, your inspiratory reserve volume yeah. at the top, and then your expiratory reserve volume at the bottom, which out if you add those three together, you get your vital capacity and the FVC, so it's your forced vital capacity. So in the test, they ask you to take a deep breath in as much as you can and then breathe out as hard and as fast as you can. The FEV1 is what comes out in the first second. And the FVC is what comes out over the whole test. Mm, so it's probably important at this point to say, you know, what gives us the obstructive nature of COPD? Mm-hmm. Why is it an obstructive lung disease as opposed to a restricted lung disease? Well, that's um, that's in the results of the spirometry, right? And you mentioned a ratio as well. Yeah, so you take the ratio of the FEV1 over the FVC and... To diagnose someone with COPD, that has to be less than 0.7. So making the FEV1 70% or less of the FVC. And what is it in a normal person? Is it about 80%? Yeah, so between 75 and 85%. Okay. And it's probably important there to say that COPD has got it in the name. It's an obstructive lung disease. Mm -hmm. So that, as you say, is defined by having this ratio that's smaller than 0.7, Um, What about a restricted lung disease? Like interstitial pulmonary fibrosis? Exactly. Then in that case, your FVC becomes smaller overall because you're, you're, yeah, I don't know why. So you have a reduction in lung, so you're, FVC is smaller because you have a reduction in lung volume. Yeah. And also what happens to your FEV1 over FVC ratio? Then it can be bigger than you'd expect. Yes. Like, or a greater percentage than you'd expect. Yeah. So it could be up in the sort of 80 to 90% uh, or a ratio of Because your FVC is smaller overall. Mm, and because it's... Um, Essentially, with a restrictive lung, it's fibrosed. It's harder to get the air in, and then it recoils quicker. Mm. Okay. Moving on from that, then, 
if someone say presented to your GP with these kind of symptoms of breathlessness and, and yep. you were suspecting COPD, mm-hmm. you might do some other investigations as well. Uh, chest X-ray. Yeah. So if you've done a chest X-ray, because you probably want to rule out any other causes of breathlessness overall. Yeah. Um, what might you see on a chest X-ray in someone with COPD? So you get some chronic changes on a chest X-ray in COPD. Yeah. So the ones I know of are that you get a hyperinflated lung fields so that's when you can count more than seven anterior ribs very good and uh you also get like a flattening of the diaphragm Mm -hmm. um so that that's really good that does correlate then to what you might see when you look at the patient in that you might find that they've got what you call a barrel chest so mm -hmm. the, the ribs might lie a bit more uh, horizontally on the film because they've got this hyperinflated chest and that's what you've seen in your chest x-ray. Yeah. The other thing you might see is that the lung fields appear a bit darker than normal because they're hyperinflated, so there's more air there and the air is what's dark on our imaging. Yeah. Okay, so now you've, you're confident that you've got a diagnosis of COPD mm-hmm. in a patient. Yeah. How would you look to manage that? Uh, well, as we said, 95% of everyone who gets COPD is a smoker. So I'd imagine the first thing that you'd want to do is encourage them to stop smoking. That's brilliant. Smoking cessation is probably the most important thing you can actually do for this patient. Because I guess it slows down the progression of the disease if they stop smoking. It is essentially the only thing that's going to slow down the progression of this disease. You're completely right. Um, what other things then might you want to make sure um doesn't everyone with copd get a vaccination of some description yes they do so they get a, a pneumococcal vaccination as soon as they're diagnosed mm-hmm. um, and they'll also get a yearly influenza vaccination flu jab because they're in one of those at-risk populations and does everybody get like medication so the medications would very much depend on both your symptoms and how many exacerbations you have. Right. So there's some criteria Mm -hmm. for defining patients into groups um, under something we call the gold criteria. Have you heard of that? Uh, No. Is it something like... Oh, no. Maybe I have, actually, like, global something, lung something. Gold. It's the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. How does that make gold? They choose the letters they want and they make an acronym out of it. There's no L in any of those. Moving swiftly on, (laughs) how do we... (laughs) So what is one of the key therapy options for COPD? Inhalers. Yep. So inhaled bronchodilators. Yes. Are absolutely first um, line therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you name me any bronchodilator? Salbutamol. Good. So salbutamol is one example. Um, so it's probably good to talk about the pharmacology here of what these inhalers are as well. So salbutamol. I'm not my teeth when you say pharmacology. Pharmacology is mm. great, everyone. Let's everyone talk likes about pharmacology. It. So let's go through it. So salbutamol. Yep. What type of drug is that? It's a beta two agonist. Yep. So quick heads up there to, to remind people. Agonist is something that binds to a receptor and acts, having its physiological action. 
and salbutamol binds to beta 2 receptors. Beta 2 receptors are found where? In the lungs, because you've got two lungs. Absolutely, so that's predominantly beta 2 found in the lungs. They're beta 2 adrenoreceptors, mm-hmm. um, and therefore they cause relaxation of the smooth muscle. Yeah. So which part of the autonomic nervous system are they mimicking? So if you're causing relaxation and bronchodilation, that's your sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. So that's like noradrenaline. Yes. So noradrenaline would normally be acting on beta-2 adrenal receptors and in causing bronchodilation and in this case we've got salbutamol as an agonist that's mimicking that action trying to do the same thing basically yeah so you might also hear it called a sympathomimetic because it's mimicking the action of sympathetic system Hmm. that's a good word sympathomimetic yeah sounds good anyway sounds great it's a good scrabble word okay so that um the other name for it is a short acting beta agonist you Mm -hmm. might see it written as saba um Okay, then. So then we've got another type of inhaler. Yeah. Um, which is an anti-muscarinic. What's that? Like tyotropium. Yeah, very good. So tyotropium um, or ipotropium are anti-muscarinics. Yep. Um, one of them is short-acting. One of them's long-acting. Which one's short-acting? <laughs> so the, the ipotropium yep. is a short-acting... Okay. Muscarinic antagonist. Antagonist, so it's it's trying to do the opposite. Yep. So it, it binds and it will block the physiological function of that receptor. Mm-hmm. So it binds to muscarinic receptors. Yep. Which would normally cause bronchoconstriction. Yes. Because they are part of what part of the autonomic the nervous system? Parasympathetic. Yeah. So what would normally act on the muscarinic receptors in the parasympathetic nervous system. Acetylcholine. Yeah. So you've got sympathetic, which is noradrenaline, beta-2, or parasympathetic is normally acetylcholine or muscarinic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as we say, ipotropium blocks that, and that's our short-acting muscarinic antagonist. So we also had our long-acting muscarinic antagonist that we said was tyotropium. Yep. And so you can get inhalers of all of those, essentially. Cool. Now, we were saying that COPD, it's a chronic disease with chronic inflammation as well. So another type of therapy we can give would be what? Steroids? Yeah, so inhaled corticosteroid. So like beclomethazone? Exactly like beclomethazone. On fire. Yeah, is an example of a inhaled corticosteroid. Um, what are the sort of key things that we need to tell our patients when we're giving them inhaled corticosteroids? Oh, it can give you thrush in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it can do. So inhaled corticosteroids um, bring down inflammation, but they also reduce your immune response. So they stop you from being able to fight off infections and therefore leave you more prone to getting things like candidiasis in the mouth. Mm. So candida or thrush in your mouth, essentially. Yeah. So make sure you tell your patients to... And they to... have to rinse their mouth out when they've used their inhaler. Absolutely, yeah. So rinse your mouth out after you've used your inhaler. And you also don't want to be using it too much? No, so they're... 
are side effects to long-term steroid use um, and they're consistent also with a, a type of medical condition, aren't they? Cushing's. Yeah, so you might get Cushing's or features of Cushing's with long-term steroid use and those classically would be things like... A moon face, centripetal obesity. Yep, thin skin, um, striae, um, anything else you can think of completely. Oh, things like osteoporosis as well. Mm. All right. So how we decide who gets which of those inhalers or whatever is defined by their gold category. Do you start off, if you're someone that has fewer than one exacerbation per year and very mild symptoms, just having any inhaler that seems to bring you benefit be a short acting or a long acting yeah um, and then those essentially escalate so if you're getting more symptoms and you're going up those categories you're going to have more like a long acting muscarinic or beta agonist um, and if you are having more exacerbations it may be that you then switch into having a inhaled corticosteroid as well so where you sort of fall on in those categories, on that gold scale, is between how many exacerbations you have and what your symptoms are like. And it's going to be around how you and the doctor sort of work out what's best for you, really. Hmm. So we've talked a lot about the, the chronic yeah. uh, management of COPD. Um, but we said that it does have these acute exacerbations. And if we go back to our, our man at the start then, yes. our case, he's come in with uh, an acute uh, worsening of his breathlessness. Mm-hmm. And uh, exacerbation is defined as an acute worsening of breathlessness. Um, and he's also got some other symptoms as well. What were his other, what was his other key feature? Like lots of green sputum. So a key change in his sputum, yes, is one of those key presenting symptoms. What other presenting symptoms might someone have if they have an, an exacerbation? Fever? Yeah, they may have a fever if there's a, a real infective aspect there. Increasing cough as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we said exacerbations could be infective if they're presenting with fever potentially. Are they always infective? No, not always. They can be caused by, like, other things. Such as? Maybe, like, allergies or pollution? Yeah, both of those can actually cause exacerbations of COPD. So if we focus then on infective, do you know any pathogens which are likely to cause exacerbations? I think it's most commonly bacterial, although it can be viral. Yeah. Um, like Haemophilus influenza, I think is the most common mm-hmm. bacteria and that's followed by things like streptococcus pneumoniae moraxella catarralis um, and there are some atypical bugs as well that can cause exacerbations what about the viruses cold and flu so influenza and rhinovirus yeah all right so those are organisms which can cause exacerbations just what investigations might you do for someone who presents with an acute exacerbation of their COPD? So investigations-wise, you'd probably be interested to take a blood gas mm-hmm. and to look at a chest x-ray. Absolutely. And so when you take your chest x-ray, mm-hmm. what might you expect to see? Well, you might not see all that much on a chest x-ray, other than maybe the chronic changes we discussed earlier, if they had uh, long-standing COPD. Mm-hmm. But you'd be wanting to rule out like 
other causes of their breathlessness. Mm. So what would be some other good differentials for an exacerbation that you might see on chest x-ray? Um, pneumonia. Yeah, so you might see consolidation there. Uh, pneumothorax. Good. And why might pneumothorax actually be a bit more likely in someone with COPD? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I learned this the other day, actually, because the, in the emphysema, where mm-hmm. the alveoli like break down, they get like big air spaces called bully in the lungs. Mm. And then they're obviously sort of like weak and they can rupture. And then that co- can cause a pneumothorax because then the air can get into the, the pleural space. Yeah. So that air in the pleural space could be, as you say, due to bullous lung disease. Um, other differentials then you probably you may see on chest x-ray might be congestive cardiac failure and an exacerbation mm. of cardiac failure may yeah, cause... people can have heart failure and COPD, there's no... <laughs> absolutely. It may cause um, increasing breathlessness as well. Um, other things like pulmonary embolism, as we've said in our PE podcast... Yes, you may see a sign like a wedge infarct on a chest x-ray, but it's unlikely that you're going to be seeing that. Okay, so let's talk a bit more then about the ABG you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So what might you find on someone's ABG? What might you be looking for? So you want, on an ABG, you get given their PaO2, Mm -hmm. so their oxygen levels in their blood. Mm Mm-hmm. A PaCO2, their carbon dioxide levels in their blood, mm-hmm. um, which I guess is the first two things I'd look at. Fair enough. And when you're looking at those, we've got a definition. So if you have low oxygen levels, mm-hmm. normal CO2 levels, what's that called? Type 1 respiratory failure. Good. And if you had high CO2 levels and low O2 levels? Type 2 respiratory failure. Fantastic. And what's the key problem with type 2 respiratory failure then? Type 2 respiratory failure, you have high CO2, mm-hmm. so that's hypercapnia, mm-hmm. and that can make you acidotic. Very good. So because of the equation where carbon dioxide bonds with water and makes carbonic acid, etc., that can make you acidotic. So if your pH, therefore, has dropped below 7.35... And your pH is another thing you get on your ABG readout, right? Absolutely. So pH is right at the top. Mm-hmm. So patients that present with exacerbations of COPD, do you know if they're more commonly likely to have type 1 or type 2? Type 2. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so they're most likely to have type 2 respiratory failure. So that mixture of hypoxia and hypercapnia, which can lead to acidosis. Um, our hypercapnia might not always be leading to acidosis though mightn't it what Mm -hmm. might particularly patients with chronic copd have on their blood gas well you also get another thing you get the you get the bicarbonate Mm -hmm. on the blood gas and if their bicarbonate is higher than you would expect then that could show that they are like compensating for being long-term hypercapnic very good. So the high bicarbonate, which, which organ controls the bicarbonate? Kidney. Yes. So the kidney controls the amount of bicarbonate and that bicarbonate buffers out some of the acid. So that's why we say that there might be compensation 
mm-hmm. for their That's acidosis. Like type two, it's like respiratory acidosis with metabolic compensation. So an ABG is very important uh, bedside blood test to do. Um, other blood tests that you might do, some of the acute exacerbation, very useful because you might look for their white blood cells, neutrophils, leukocytes. Good. You're going to be doing standard things as well, aren't you? Use and ease, CRP. CRP is another good one for inflammation, infection. infection. Um, what about another cause of breathlessness that you might check for then on a blood sample? PU. So, which test would you do for that? If you were so yeah, you may do a D-dimer if you were if you were suspecting a PE. Um, and also, if it's a cardiac cause of their breathlessness and oh, like a troponin, yeah, you could do a troponin as well. And so, do an ECG on them as well, I would imagine. Also, very good idea. So, doing an ECG, um, an ECG in someone with uh, an exacerbation of COPD, if they don't have any cardiac conditions underlying, it's likely to be normal or a bit tachycardic, say if they've got mm. an infection. And I think something that we haven't actually talked about is that we've got this patient who's maybe coming to A&E in this case mm-hmm. who's like really breathless struggling to breathe and we haven't done anything about it as of yet apart from sticking with needles <laughs> <laughs> so other than yeah other than the investigations we probably do we probably want to try to give them something for their to help them with their breathing before we were to start sticking them with needles doing chest x-rays right so yeah so it's important to say there isn't it that with any acutely unwell patient, you're going to take an A to E approach. Um, and A stands for airway to start with. And you're very quickly going to get on to breathing and realise that you might need to do something about that because they are <laughs> breathless. Yes. <laughs> so what are we going to do for someone who is breathless? Well, I'm going to say that we're going to give them oxygen. But then I'm going to say that I know there's caveats to this. Yes. So there are big caveats and controversies around oxygen administration for COPD patients, aren't there? So let's try and unpick some of them at least. Mm -hmm. So yes, if your patient is hypoxic, you are going to want to give them some oxygen, aren't you? Yes. Now, oxygen saturations... What kind of oxygen saturations might you target for someone who has COPD? So the classic thing is 88 to 92%. Yes. So you you might say... Which is lower than somebody who doesn't have COPD. Yeah, because let's say if someone who is otherwise fit and well comes into A&E, you're going to target 94 or above. So why then might we target uh, 88 to 92 because these people are walking around with COPD, they might always, as we said, be chronically sort of hypoxic and hypercapnic and have that metabolic compensation going on, which allows them to maintain that. Mm. Um, and that changes like their drive for respiration. So it can do. So that's apparently that's one of the uh, it's one of the classic reasons why we worry about giving oxygen to patients with COPD is is their drive for respiration. So most people rely on their, what we call the hypercapnic drive. Mm-hmm. So having high levels of carbon dioxide, it uh, is detected by your chemoreceptors and that drives you to increase your rate of respiration. And that's the key thing. When you hold your breath, that's the first thing that makes you want to take a nice deep breath. Just to get rid of that 
carbon dioxide rather than to take in more oxygen. Yeah. That's the first thing that... Yeah, so that's the mo- almost like the most important thing because that's the thing that's going to make you acidotic. Mm-hmm. Now, we also have a hypoxic drive. Yep. Um, and that is obviously related to how much oxygen you have in your blood. Now, the thinking behind this is that patients who have generally are hypercapnic always have that high CO2. So it's not driving them to breathe so much. But they have this hypoxic drive, which whereby when they have low oxygen, that causes them to want to breathe more. Oh, so if you then go and give them a load of oxygen, mm-hmm. they might not breathe? That's the, so that's the thinking. So the thinking there is that if we administer lots of oxygen in an uncontrolled way, we might essentially wipe out their hypoxic drive, they might reduce their respiratory rate, and therefore they might become even worse, even more hypercapnic, and therefore more acidotic and get on the whole a lot worse. So caveat that with there are other mechanisms that are talked about for causing this, but it's why we have this big sort of idea about targeting 88 to 92. And you can target oxygen sites with different like oxygen delivery techniques and stuff, can't you? Yeah. So in particular, there's something called a Venturi Mm -hmm. face mask, um, which are attachments for a mask, which can very accurately titrate the percentage of fraction of inspired oxygen which you're giving a patient. So that allows you to um, control how much oxygen you give them to target those cells. Keep an eye on it as well. Yeah, and on the whole, you should be um, making sure you examine the patient's respiratory rate, you know, and and if they're presenting acutely, continuing to monitor them. So moving through our A to E approach, mm-hmm. and we've basically assessed that their main problems are sitting there in B, they're sitting there in breathing. <laughs> yeah. uh, otherwise, in the cardiovascularly, all the rest of those things, they're okay. Um, but their breathing isn't great. Their oxygen sats aren't great. You've started giving some oxygen and titrating that. Um, what are the other things that you're going to want to start for managing their exacerbation? Um, steroids? Yeah. Very good. You you may want to give them steroids because this is an inflammatory uh, process, an exacerbation, and therefore we do give steroids. Um, do you know which type of steroid you might give? Prednisolone. Good. So prednisolone, uh, a five day course is pretty standard, um, giving about thirty milligrams once daily. I guess if they're really unwell, like because that prednisolone is oral. Yeah. If they're really unwell, you might need to give them IV steroids. You might. And so the alternative to prednisolone is? IV hydrocortisone. Yeah. So 100 milligrams IV six hourly might be a suitable um, approach if they can't tolerate an oral medicine. And the next thing I want to say is that you give them antibiotics. Yeah. But we don't actually know that yet that in this case, if our patients exacerbation has been caused by bacteria so you don't know and the only way that you're technically going to find out either which bacteria or which organism caused it or if you're going to do things like sputum samples samples for microscopy culture and sensitivities which could guide antibiotic therapy or if you think it's something like influenza a flu swab Um, but certainly 
the advice is that any patients who present with a change in their sputum mm -hmm. or who are requiring non-invasive ventilation or invasive ventilation should empirically be given antibiotics. And those would be things like amoxicillin, doxycycline, clarithromycin. It's different depending on where you are, isn't it? it like really trust is, guidelines yeah. sort of. So check the, the guidelines for where you are as to what are the prevalent bugs in the area that cause um, exacerbation. I guess we said that bacterial causes are most common. Mm -hmm. And because it can, th these patients can be very unwell, you want to start treating that you as do. soon as possible. Yeah. So something that we mentioned for the chronic management, we haven't yet mentioned for the acute management. Mm -hmm. So what about our inhalers or our bronchodilators? Oh, yeah. So you can give them like nebulizers. You can. So nebulizers, you can give them either their inhalers or if they are presenting quite unwell, you might want to give them nebulizers. For those of you that have not seen a nebulizer before, we take a bronchodilator drug and it's dissolved in a liquid and that liquid then gets air pressurized through it to aerosolize particles of the drug in the liquid. Those can then be breathed in by the patient and they can act then on the lungs themselves. And you can do that with subutamol yes. and like ipotropium. Yes, ipotropium. So the short acting ones. So you do it with salbutamol and the standard dose might be five milligrams in a nebulizer every 20 to 30 minutes, or ipotropium bromide, where you'd be giving about 500 micrograms um, up to a maximum of two milligrams per day. Um, now, it's important to note that those nebulizers, you may want to drive with air rather than oxygen. Remember, we're trying to control quite tightly the amount of oxygen we're trying oh, to administer. That's a good point, yeah. So that's an important one to note. So say then you've tried salbutamol, you've tried ipotropium, you've given them a steroid and uh, oxygen. What might be a further step if they are still not looking very good on their blood gas, if they're still quite hypercapnic? So you, you may consider ventilation. And what, what type of ventilation would you consider? Like BiPAP or CPAP first? So BiPAP with two different levels of pressure, which helps to um, support their breathing and help with the exhalation of carbon dioxide as well. And if it is a very serious exacerbation, and this may be one of their first initial exacerbations, you may want to consider invasive ventilation as well. Hopefully you've managed to prevent them coming to hospital with an exacerbation in the first place. That would be a good idea. That would be good. And do you know how we might try that? So um, the patients that I've met who've got COPD have um, medication that they keep at home to take in case they get like a mild exacerbation in the hope that it can be managed at home mm. without them having to need to go to hospital. What did those packs include? Like a seven day course of, or maybe it was 14, I don't know actually. Um, but a course of antibiotics mm -hmm. and a course of oral steroids. Yeah, and hopefully that should be able to ward off their exacerbation and stop it from getting worse and them having to come into hospital. Yeah. So that should have been a quick guide to COPD, both its chronic management and the management of acute exacerbations as well. I feel like you made me work hard for that today. 
Yeah, well, we've covered a lot. We've covered yeah. everything from what might cause an exacerbation, reading ABGs, um, ventilatory drives. We've covered quite a lot. Inspiratory reserve volumes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, lots of nightmare physiology topics can come up. If you're interested in checking out our notes for this podcast, they're available on medicolifestyle.com. We also have all of our other podcast episodes available on our website, also Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we also have all the other notes from all the other podcasts that you can download for your revision. Thanks for listening. Vapor is steam, aerosol. It looks like steam. Aerosol is water par- particles in air. And then it is aerosolized. Yep. My bad. If you'd read the guidance on aerosol generating procedures in COVID-19, you would know that a nebulizer is not in fact designated an aerosol generating procedure, says the manufacturers anyway. Even though you're aerosolizing it. You're aerosolizing the drug and not them. (laughs) (laughs) Not the patient themselves. That's what they say, anyway.